I ask Mackenzie to remain standing for just a few more seconds. Um, you may not have noticed the difference, but she is now weight-bearing. Uh, after after uh, two months of, of recovery from her uh, car accident, from her surgery, you, you may sit now. Um, she excitedly told me she is medically cleared to use both of her feet in the way she knew how to use them for the first 23 years. So I'm grateful for your recovery. As always, when we can see in real time uh, the changes taking place in somebody's life, in their body, in their relationships, uh, in one way or another, this, this intersection of amazing grace and amazing health care or amazing support or an amazing counselor or an amazing opportunity, when they come together and we see healing and hope or growth, recovery, that is what it is all about. And sometimes we just simply have to wipe the scales from our eyes enough to see God at work. Sometimes it's in the small or in the unexpected, the unanticipated or the under-celebrated that God shows God's self most profoundly and most powerfully. So to calibrate our hearts and our lives in some way to tune in to the activity of God is a daily task. That is why we invite you as disciples to pray every morning and indeed, as the Apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing because it is in the experience of prayer that our lives become open to the presence, the power, and the activity of God. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians today, and you can go ahead and move to the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Um, in a time of ongoing, slow-burning crisis for the church, that should give us all hope and comfort that the challenges that face churches now are not new challenges, but instead all of the forces at work in our world and in our culture and indeed in our own hearts that would drive wedges between us are confounded when confronted by the wisdom of the cross. That's what Paul tells the Corinthians. And it is what we hear today. Now what that means will take a few more minutes to unpack. But I want us to hold out this image, this, uh, this view that was chosen by you. When we did this renovation, you may not remember, there used to be sort of a, um, I'm sure it was on sale at the Sunday school board back in the day, uh, a baptismal painting that looked remarkably like the painting that was also in the baptistry at First Baptist Church of Elizabeth City. Uh, it was a river and then something that looked like Mount Fuji back there. You remember it. But when it was time for us to make choices as a community of faith about what visually will guide us, we made a number of choices. We were able to remove the balcony and open up this space and there's so much volume and light. And that committee chose colors that just sort of opened up the experience. I'm pleased to see more and more folks are risking on uh, sitting on this side of the sanctuary. For a long time, we discovered that that's where the morning sun shines in. So in the summertime, it can get awfully hot. Oh, but I thank God for the light. Everywhere you look, there are these open windows and the light. And there's one light 
amidst all of these LEDs, the beautiful chandeliers and everything else that is never turned off, and it's the light in the baptistry. Because we discovered, to me it was an accident, maybe it was a, it was a design intention, that passers-by driving by or walking by on the sidewalk out here could see straight through the exterior glass, this interior glass, right to the baptistry. And when it's illuminated, that cross is shown to any and all who would come by as a symbol of who we are. Deep down at the center of things, this is who we are. As Mackenzie prayed, the followers of a crucified God. That cross, though it has not always been there, carries in its substance for us the very panels that used to be on the side of the walls. Just a little hope for all those who are traditionalists. There are pieces and features all over this sanctuary, whether it's the stained glass or even this pulpit here, that carry our past forward. And as they are reimagined for the next generation, they show us who we really are and who we've always been. So let's hear now the words of the apostle. To the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. May God bless the reading and the hearing of these words. A number of years ago, as part of an ecumenical uh, community I was a part of, the downtown clergy, we shared preaching responsibilities across certain seasons of the year, including the season of anticipation and preparation for Easter, known as Lent. These great 40 days plus six Sundays of fasting, praying, of self-denial, and reflection. And we would have on Wednesdays, midweek, light lunches at the Episcopal Church, and then we'd have a rotating group of preachers. And it was my, son, uh, it was my Wednesday uh, to preach at that service, and the a priest of the church, Brent, found me, he said, now you need to know the deanery is meeting to, the Episcopalians always have such fancy words for everything. Um, the deanery was meeting that day at the church. And so you're gonna see a few callers on men and women, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. And so some folks in the community, a bunch of priests are all sitting in this uh, congregation and I preached and I preached hard, I did the best I could. And when it was over, one kind, very small man came up to me and he said, hello, uh, my name is Michael Curry and I'm a priest here in the church. I said, are you Bishop Michael? He was at that time Bishop of the state of North Carolina, soon to be Bishop of the Episcopal Church in America. And I found Brent and I said, you could have told me I was preaching to Bishop Curry. 
Um, there's something that happens sometimes when we are confronted with people who, in our minds at least, are better educated, better prepared, more experienced, and all of the rest. We pull our punches. I'm super grateful that I didn't have the opportunity uh, to know that ahead of time. I think I would have changed too much. But I have found this over time. In certain situations, I feel intimidated by the context in which I am called to preside. Uh, whether it is in the church I grew up in, where everybody still sort of sees me as that child whose diapers they changed in the nursery, or when I go to the seminary that in many ways changed my theological diapers, Duke Divinity School, and when their faculty come here when it's time to ordain one of our seminarians who's come alongside us and bonded with us, and I'm looking in the faces of people who have forgotten more than I'll ever learn. And I'm supposed to have something to say to them. I don't like the way that feels. I love being on the receiving end. It's made me more appreciative. Last week, as you know, I was in Tampa at a conference of several churches. And as I uh, was able to spend the weekend with them, we went to a church nearby. It's the most interesting place I'd seen in a while. It's a little chapel, a little tiny Baptist church that has formed a partnership with the Presbyterian Church USA. And so this Baptist pastor is also a member of the session there of the Presbytery of South Florida or something. Fascinating. It was the best sermon I'd heard in a long time. You know why? I didn't have to preach it. It was wonderful. But it is in that disconnect between what we think we know and what we think other people know, and how that plays out in the little politics and games of power that we often exert, whether it's in church or out in the world, that's the situation into which Paul is speaking today. The Corinthian church is a church that's divided. It's probably divided on several levels. Economically, there are some folks who are rich and can afford luxury and leisure. And in that context, those who could afford leisure took it. So they weren't working, but had plenty of money. And they were paying the people who had to come to church late because they were doing the work. And so slaves and servants and day workers would also be a part of this radically inclusive congregation where Paul preached a common need before a common cross rich or poor. Now, there seems to be strife between men and women, certainly those who come from a Jewish background and those who come from the mainstream, uh, from a Jewish perspective, they call them Gentiles. Uh, we call them Romans or Greco-Romans, people of the town who aren't Jewish. All of them mashed together in this one place. And inevitably, some have tried to exert influence, not because of a sense of spiritual calling that's been affirmed by the congregation, but because simply, I know more than you. I have a string of letters after my name, BS, MA, PhD, whatever it may have been in that context. And so Paul asked from the very beginning, who are the wise ones? of this age. And then Paul, kind of throughout this entire section of the letter, goes to repudiate the brainiacs. You're not all you think you are, he says, so don't get too puffed up about what you think you know. Makes me think of a sermon that Martin Luther King preached 
It's called drum major instinct. You may have heard this. And he talked about how he and most folks wouldn't be able to quote Einstein or Aristotle or know the laws of thermodynamics by heart. But what was important is that you had a heart to serve. And he said we all have an impulse to be out front, to be seen, to be a leader. But he said when he dies, he wanted this said at his funeral. If any of you are around when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. And every now and then, I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like someone to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the war question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. And I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, then say I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. They won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious of things in life to leave behind, but I just want to leave a committed life behind. How about this morning? Where are the wise ones this morning? I hate to break it to you, but I see a lot of them. This has been the most challenging congregation for me to serve, in part because you know so much more than I do. You're better read. You're better educated. You're more experienced. You are more successful. And I'm so proud each and every day to see the ways that you bring your whole selves to your work and to your lives and to this world. And you present all that you've learned with such grace and humility. And the news, we'll decide if it's good news or hard news, is that is not what brings us here. That is not what joins us together in a time as sacred as this one. In Paul's church, as I said, uh, here in Corinth, the people we're experiencing a nasty divide between themselves. There were some that had a high sense of entitlement. Status was a sign that God favored them over some others. So their advanced education or their wealth gave them the right to call the shots and, and to be first in line. One of the places where this is on display and, and Paul talks about their tradition of, of, of a love feast, of an agape meal, where people would come and it'd be not unlike 
a Baptist covered dish supper, there would be a host or a hostess who was the homeowner who would open up his or her home and allow the church to come and gather. And there they would share a meal. But remember what I said about leisure and workers? There were people who had nothing else to do but show up all day and drink all the food and drink all the wine. Then, toward the end of the day, as other members of the church arrived, there was nothing more to eat. There was nothing more to share. Because those that had so much simply lived into the moment and enjoyed all there was. It's kind of like scallop potatoes at homecoming. Have you ever noticed that if you're last in line, the scallop potatoes are always gone? Note to the hospitality committee, hold back one pan of scalloped potatoes. But this, Paul points out, is a grave sin because it is emblematic of the sort of disrupted and disjointed and disunified life that in no way represents the vision and the values of the one in whose name they were called together. Now, it's not just on the privileged or the educated or the rich. There are those uh, who are going without, who look at those who have more, and they can only rely on that sense of indignation or fear or anger to carry them forward. They're not as spiritual as we are. They may be book smart, but they have no common sense. It's a great country song. I've got a working man's PhD. Some of y'all may know that song. But that speaks to the other side. And when these two are held together, there's no way they can come together. And so when Paul writes them, basically says, y'all, and I think Paul did say y'all. Y'all, you're looking at this all wrong. You need a different point of view, a different perspective that goes beyond everything you think you know, this conventional wisdom of this world. You're embracing the wrong values. Everyone is looking for something to boast about or to feel better about over and against others, but that's not what Jesus was about. The problem is you continue to insist on defining yourself by the world's standards, by the world's values and not God's. God's values are fundamentally different than the conventional wisdom of this world. And so as Paul continues to write here at the end of chapter 1, he says God has chosen, that's an important word, chosen, the weak and the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the strong. And it is the cross, the cross, that is the picture that holds before our view how God confounds the wisdom of this world. Because it is hard to make sense of Christ crucified, of a Messiah crucified. If you come from Jewish extraction, the Old Testament hope for a Messiah was for a political leader or a military leader. Somebody who could drive out the putrefying forces in the land and reclaim it for God. So that you could become your own little superpower. And folks would look at that cross and say he's not a Messiah. He failed in his mission. The true Messiah wins. Jesus lost. He's not ours. But then to those who were outside of that Jewish community, to say that Jesus was a Messiah and crucified was even tougher. Because in the Greco-Roman mind, gods don't 
bleed and gods are not vulnerable. They don't get crucified in one of the most shameful public acts of government punishment. Paul, this is nonsense. Why would we follow a bleeding, defeated king? And so Paul's message of the gospel, this wisdom of the gospel, sounds profoundly unwise, whether you have Jewish ears to hear or Greek or Roman ears to hear. But somehow in coming together, in responding as you have to the call to join together as followers of this one, we are discovering the deep, an abiding truth of the wisdom of the cross. That Jesus' way of sacrifice and vulnerability and standing up for others, no matter what the cost, frees us, and it is the true path ultimately toward our true selves and to a better healed world. Somehow in giving and sacrificing, we receive something that's so much greater than we ever give up. And Jesus teaches us finally and fully that power is not some sort of alpha male or alpha female domination of someone else. We've seen the abuse that that leads to over and over again. But instead, Paul says, align yourselves with Jesus. And in following him, act like him. And if you act like him, you're trusting him. And God uses people and situations in the world that the world often sees as insignificant or unimportant to accomplish these amazing purposes. Mackenzie captured it very well in her prayer today. That if you were to pick a leading candidate after multiple focus groups for a leader of the Greco-Roman world, and ultimately for the entire world, you would not have picked a poor, marginalized, Jewish representative from, from, from a faraway outpost in the Roman Empire. Wouldn't be leading in any of the polls. But the Holy Spirit calls us to be willing to follow those ways of Jesus and to trust him. And so as we align ourselves with Jesus' own life, as we follow him and live out his values and his vision in the world, we will be living a life that is different than is customary. You know, on Thursday nights, there's a group of us that meets online, and we're reading through the Gospel of Matthew right now. And we found how Jesus is so remarkably kind of... Um, um, pragmatic and vivid and material in the way he calls his disciples to live out their lives by loving children and loving your enemies, by caring for the poor, by noticing the marginalized, by putting others before yourselves. And just like the Corinthians, the hope is that this will heal the divisions of our world as we live in the world according to Jesus. And so the wisdom of the world comes into constant conflict, conflict with the wisdom of Jesus' cross, where the wisdom of this world tells us that we need to be perfect, to be worthy of love, and to be worthy of acceptance. Jesus teaches us 
all that despite our imperfections, we are already loved beyond measure and welcome into his presence. Conventional wisdom says, always make sure you leave enough for yourself. Put yourself first far enough so that you don't go without, but selflessness and compassion are the keys that Jesus leaves us for happiness and well-being. Conventional wisdom tells us that we should avoid suffering if we can, limit it through insurance, hide it when it is shameful. But by his cross, Jesus speaks to us as one who himself has been wounded. And he speaks by his wounds. So we can be the kind of place that can look at one person in a whole crowd and say, I see you're struggling and I love you. How can we help? That's not the way of the world. I could go on. Conventional wisdom of the world tells us that we should look after our material selves as consumers. We should never let other people see us stressed out and project strength and invulnerability. The conventional wisdom of this world promotes these ideas that all of our external factors should always be our calling cards and should entitle us to special attention. And one by one, the cross brings us back to a place where God has poured God's self into the world and submitted to the worst of this world that we might find another way because the way of this world simply is working. And so it calls for a daily attention in our lives a daily attention, often in the small and unseen parts of our lives, that over time accumulate into a series of choices that remake us from the inside out. So no matter how accomplished you may be on the outside, the architecture of your character and the architecture of your spirit resembles that of the crucified Christ so that all of your accomplishments, and yes, even your failures, can become useful in the hands of God. Paul called it being fools for Christ's sake. Flannery O'Connor said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. But we do have odd conversations sometimes. I'll never forget on a snowy Sunday morning when I finally got to sleep in, we had canceled church and I had two young children at that time. And we woke up late and I put on pajamas and we walked down, there was eight inches of snow on the ground, we made pancakes and we sat in front of a burning fire. We played games all morning, we laughed, we played and 11 o'clock came and it was about 11.15 and there I was still in my pajamas, warming by the fire, eating pancakes with my laughing children and my, my relaxing wife, and I said, is this what we're up against? It is. And when you talk to somebody, they say, why would you give up a perfectly lazy Sunday morning to attend church? Helps me be a better person. And you give them money? 
like actual money to spend on someone or something else, yes, it's become important to me to pass on what I've received so that it can be given to someone else. But it's not just Sundays. You do this do-gooder stuff other times of the week. You volunteer your time. You don't get paid. Well, yeah, you've heard the story about the starfish and the guy walking on the beach, and he throws one back, and the guy says, you didn't save the starfish. He said, yeah, I saved that one. But even more than that, I've never left one of those volunteer experiences where I didn't feel like I received more than I ever could have given. Why don't you join me? You might find out the difference that it makes. That's what we do day to day. Living by this different way, it makes us odd to others, but we can have meaningful lives that really make a difference. And back to the cross. When I was taking preaching class, Will Wollemann said one of the, the words of wisdom his preaching professor taught him at the end of every sermon was to ask, why did Jesus have to die to make that sermon credible? That's a high standard. Because sometimes we fill our sermons and we fill our spiritual lives with so much fluff. Did Jesus really have to die to make that life credible? A great British Methodist preacher from a previous generation put it to me in such powerful terms. If Jesus was a man, it was murder. If he was God, it was an offering. If he was a man, they took his life from him. He was God, he laid it down himself. If he was a man, we'd be called to admiration, but if he was God, we are called to adoration. If he was a man, we must stand up and take our hats off. If he was God, we must fall down and give him our hearts. For the cross calls our lives into stark focus. And you may say, but I'm not ready, or I'm too weak, or you don't know deep down who I am. And you're right, but God does. And God chooses the foolish, the weak, the nothing, in order to overturn the conventional wisdom of this world that has formed you into somebody who believes that you cannot be all God has made you to be and called you to be. But when the message of the cross becomes the message of your life and you realize that those forgotten and shameful and difficult weaknesses that you bear are just as gently held in the hands of a God who will put you to work, it can make all the difference. And day by day, as you try and practice this way of Jesus out in the world, we find that not only do we come to know Jesus in that moment of first awareness, but daily we are being made more and more useful, more and more holy. And ultimately, when we breathe our last breath, we are redeemed even from the clutches of an unending death. It's confounding to the wisdom of this world. 
But as we conclude this time together, I want you to ask, not how did Jesus have to die to make this sermon credible, but to look at your own life and to say, why did Jesus have to die on a cross to make my life credible out in the world? And depending on your answer, you may have a response to make today. If you see a total disconnect, but you want that gap to be closed, then you can take a step forward today and offer your life to Jesus. And this community will walk with you and help you know all the ways that you can grow more and more in relationship to him. Maybe you made a promise a long time ago and you notice a disconnect. Now you need to return to that promise. Or you know you can't go alone anymore. You need to join this church as a member and you need to take a step forward and declare your desire to do that. Or it may be right where you are to offer yourself to God even the unseen places, and to ask for the wisdom, the message of the cross, to be the story of your life this day and days to come. As the handbells lead us in a time of reflection, I encourage you to consider your response as we practice our generosity and make our offerings. And then as we sing our concluding hymn, you may offer your response to this congregation.